I want to welcome you back to God Size Living Today. I'm going to just set a question in front of you this, this day. Have you prayed today? Since the time that you arose this morning to this very moment, have you stood before God with a prayer of any kind? Uh, now, I want you to trust me. I do not ask this question to point fingers in any way. I'm not here for that. Instead, I really want to relate some data collected in the United States Census 2021. Here's what the census says. If you answer the question, no. Honestly, I haven't. I haven't prayed today. Then you actually stand with the majority of Americans in our country. 55%, 55% of Americans indicate that for them, prayer is really not a daily exercise. If that is, they pray at all. Oppositely, if you answered yes, yeah, I've, I've prayed today. Guess what? You're in the minority. 45% of our nation's population indicate that for them, prayer is actually a critical part of each day. Now, here's what I find most significant. Listen to this. Amongst the group of people in our nation today that, that never pray, 32%, roughly one-third of all of them, identify as Christians. Now, I remember discovering this and wondering, how, how can that be possible? I mean, non-Christians, I understand why, why they wouldn't pray. Why, why would I? But self-identified Christians, how, how is that even possible? So here's the answer. Many do not pray because they do not believe that prayer changes anything. In other words, they would say to me, well, why, why should I do something that results in nothing? Which, of course, raises the question that we began with two weeks ago. Does it? Does prayer change anything? If you've been following over the last two weeks, we've identified actually two camps of thought around this topic and then kind of settled into a middle ground. Camp one are all of those who believe that prayer absolutely has the power to change everything. This is the group of people who would say our prayer changes us. It changes God. It, can, it changes God's mind. It can change the circumstances around us. In other words, for this group of people, I'm going to use this word, for this group of people, prayer is causative. It is the agent of cause. Now, let's go to the other camp, the opposite side. There, there's oppositely a camp that would suggest that because God is sovereign, you know what? He's already determined the whole of history from beginning to end. If that's true, this camp would argue that it might seem from time to time that God's changing things because of our prayer. But actually, he's simply accomplishing his already determined and sovereign will, which might, in some cases, align with our requests, with our desires, with our petitions. Nonetheless, the petitions themselves are not the causative agent. God is. So for this group, while prayer should be encouraged. It's, it's simply not causative in nature. So a number of people would ask then, well, then why do it? Why, why do it at all? So into these camps, of course, into all of us speaks scripture. Last week, we started our journey into scripture by looking at James chapter 5, verses 16 and following. And what, I, what I love about this scripture, if you haven't Listen, go back and, and listen to the, the podcast. What I love about it are, are two things, really. First, this is a scripture, James is, that clearly attests to the fact that prayer does create change. It would be impossible, really it would, to read James 
and, and believe that prayer does not accomplish anything. Secondly, I really love the distinction that this scripture creates between prayer as an instrument and God's will as agent, causative agent. So simply put, uh, this is a camp that would say that while God's will is always the causative agency in whatever changes take place, our prayers are actually instrumental. They're the instrument through which he's working. Now, this is not to make prayer some sort of sacramental agency. It's not. But it is to recognize that God is at work even as we release our petitions to his will. So today, I really want to move us forward by looking at what prayer does change, namely me, the one who prayers. Uh, Oswald Chambers once famously said, uh, quote, prayer is not a matter of changing things externally. That's interesting. Prayer is not a matter of changing things externally, but one of working miracles in a person's inner nature, end quote. Think about that. So over my years in the church, I can't tell you how often I've run into individuals who want to suggest that the purpose of prayer is, is to change some problem, something that is external to us, some issue, or maybe even to change God himself. Prayer, someone once told me, has the power to change God's mind, but does it? You know what? Numbers twenty three nineteen, important verse, says, quote, God is not human, that he should not lie not a human being, that he should ever change his mind. Uh, I don't think that uh, passage is pointed to often enough, but it reminds us that so often we anthropomorphize God, that is, we try to make God into a human being. Um, the writer of, of Numbers, Moses is saying, no, that's not God. That's not how he works. He doesn't, as a human being, would change his mind. So I, I'm not sure, based on this scripture, that our purpose in prayer should ever be to change God. But, some would say, well then, what about scriptures like Exodus 32, 9 to 14? Don't these kinds of scriptures point to prayer as an effort to move or to cause God to change his mind? Now, I don't know if you're familiar with this scripture, but I, I want to spend a little bit of time with it because this is a, a passage that's often pointed to as proof that our prayers can change God's mind. I'm talking again about Exodus 32, 9 to 14. I'll set some of this text in front of you here in just a moment. Let's just start with the setting, though. The setting for this scripture, I think, is familiar. Moses, at God's bequest, has climbed into the cloud that surrounded Mount Sinai. Remember, the cloud was a visible means that God uses to express his presence amongst the Israelites. Now, remember with me that this is the second time that God has summoned Moses into his presence. It was in that first meeting between God and Moses that Moses received what we call the Ten Commandments. I like to call them the Ten Words, Debarim and Hebrew of life. Now, as Moses ascends the mountain, it's God's intent to provide these words of life as he has written them on two stone tablets. As he goes up the mountain, no one knows the number of days that he will meet with God. You probably remember that on, on the first journey up Sinai, when God spoke his 10 words, the 10 commandments, 
he did this over the course of three days. Of course, there's some significance to that. Most of us recognize that number standing for the Trinity, the whole of the Godhead. This is, this is what God is, is giving to you, Israel, these words of life. I, I think about it a little bit differently. Whenever I see the Trinity, I can't help but think about this perfect relationship that exists between these three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I love the truth that God himself exists as an ongoing and living relationship between three persons. Well, this being true, I've always noted that through the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of Life, God is actually gifting Israel. He's giving them an invitation to enter into the divine circle of relationship. God's saying, listen, we've been in relationships prior to the very beginning of, of what you call time. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we've always enjoyed this intimate union. Now, here are some words that I want you to put into your life. And as you live them out, you'll join us in this circle of life. I love that, that, that picture, if you will. So remember that as the people of God received the words of life from Moses, they pledged themselves to them. Remember when Moses came down from Sinai the first time with, with the Ten Commandments, everybody was just locked in. We will do all that the Lord has spoken. Remember, that was their kind of their battle cry. But this time, this second trip up Sinai, it's going to be different. As Moses ascends Sinai the second time, he doesn't know it. But he will meet with God over a period of 40 days. 40 days, not three days, 40 days. So again, the period of time is symbolic. In, in Hebrew numerology, 10 is God's perfect number. Four represents the four corners of the earth or the whole of the earth. So I, I like to think of 40 as indicating the fact that God is seeking to perfect the whole of the fallen earth prior to his return. In fact, ultimately, it will only be through his return, the destruction of fallen earth, that he's actually able to perfect earth to return it to its its state prior to the sin of Adam and Eve. That's why the number 40 is so important in the Bible. It's always associated with this wilderness period. Uh, in the wilderness, God is seeking to perfect us. So, so keep that fact in your mind. I think it's significant toward understanding the exchange that takes place between God and Moses in chapter 32. It's during this 40-day period, think wilderness, that God's people become restless and impatient. Where, where's Moses? Has God, has God taken us out of Egypt only to abandon us again? Maybe it's time to take things into our own hands. I believe you remember um, the, the scene here in the, the desert. A group of leaders begin to press in on Aaron and Hur, who'd been left to tend for Israel during Moses' absence, these 40 days, they're demanding answers. Ultimately, remember this, they form what I can really only describe as a, a, an unholy force, uh, almost a, a demonic gang intent on creating their own gods. Why chance things? If Moses is dead, they don't know. It's been gone a long time. Then let's make up our own god, which of course they do. They create a golden calf, reminiscent of Egypt's gods. So as we turn to Exodus 32, what we're observing now is Moses, who has come down from the mountain and 
what does he witness? This golden calf and this gang of people. And here's Aaron and her with their heads down in shame. And the people are, are worshiping the golden calf. And, and God is displeased and Moses knows it. And so there's, there's this exchange. It's very interesting that it happens between Moses and God. There's a prayer that I want you to see. I'm going to read verses 9 to 14, Exodus 32. Uh, hold your Bibles out. Look at it if you want to. Um, let me just put it in front of you, and we're going to ask, Lord, that you would guide us through these words. Give us your insight, I pray. Hear the words. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Yeah, pretty much is. Verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone. He's saying to Moses, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Lord, turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Lord, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. You said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Now listen to verse 14. It's interesting. Moses is pleading. Here's the response. Verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster, that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now, I want to acknowledge something. A first reading of this scripture, it actually does seem to present an example of God changing his mind based upon Moses' words request or what we would call prayer to him. That's to say, one could easily read this text and, and conclude that Moses' prayer is the causative agent for change in God. And, and in fact, that's something that a lot of people have done. Uh, there's a lot of people who would say, look, look, just look at this. Moses prays, God is moved, he changes his mind, period. But I want to argue that at a closer reading, we have to ask the question, but, but is that true? Is Moses' prayer the cause of evasion? Is there ever a point in this descriptive scripture where we can say, you know what? Yeah, God wanted to destroy all of Israel. And he changed his mind. I'm going to argue against such. First, there are the words of God in verse 10. Let me read it again. It says, Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you. I want you to walk through these words with me carefully. Is God angry with Israel? Absolutely. In fact, uh, here, here's the word that's used in the Hebrew language. The word is off. The word creates a picture, literally translated off in Hebrew means nostril, as in flared nostrils. Picture someone who's so angry that their face cannot hide it. Their nostrils are flaring with anger. There's no doubt God's angry. And you know what? We expect such. There are leaders in Israel who've called people, God's people, to create their own God. Leaders. God, God's just given Israel. His words of life, an invitation to join the, the divine circle, the, the Trinity itself. 
And he said, listen, Israel, don't have any other gods before me. The people have shouted, you are our one and only God. You alone will we worship. And now they're doing what? Creating their own God? A calf? Yeah, God's angry. But I want you to note something about this Hebrew word, af. Well, literally, it is translated nostril or anger. There is also a sense underneath this word of long-suffering. I think this matters. In fact, I think that it serves as an indicator as to how we should understand this whole section of Scripture. Here's why. Remember with me that we follow a God who does not change. He's a God who's told us that sin separates us from relationship. Remember, relationship is what he's called us into. When we sin, what does God do? He becomes angry. But in his long suffering, he pursues us. He seeks to confront our sin, to bring us to repentance. It's only in those instances where a person commits the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit, where we know God turns these over to their sin, that it might consume them. So question, were there people amongst the Israelites who've committed this sin in this narrative? So we may not be able to know that answer with certainty, but it would seem that there were some Israelites, some amongst the leaders who've stepped over a line, who've committed a sin against the Holy Spirit. These God would, according to his will, what he's always expressed, these he would turn over to their sin that it might consume them. In fact, look at God's very next words. Why would he do this? In order, Moses that I might make a great nation of of you, Israel. So in in order for Israel to be great, those who would lead it into sin, those who have rejected the Spirit, would have to be consumed and removed. So let's let's move forward then to Moses' response, his words back to God, the the prayer. This comprises verses 11 to 13. I'm just going to read these words one more time. It says, but Moses implored the Lord as God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, who you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn, Lord, from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants. Now, again, I want to acknowledge that a first reading of these words might lead to the conclusion that Moses is calling upon God to change his mind. Seems that way. I'm going to argue the opposite. I'm going to argue that what Moses is asking for is for God to not change his mind, but to act instead according to his will. So, so how do you get there? Well, first, notice Moses' line of thought. He's simply speaking what God already knows. Egypt, what is left of it, is watching what is getting ready to happen to these Israelites. Given this, whatever action God takes with his own people will serve as a testimony to how different he, Israel, Israel's God, is than the idols of Egypt. The God of Israel is not like the unforgiving and fickle gods of Egypt. He's long-suffering, a God who desires that all become saved. So what is Moses praying for? In our English Bibles, the Hebrew text is most often translated, Lord, turn and relent. Turn and relent from this, this decision that you've made. 
Now, I, I don't want to suggest here that our English Bibles are just wrong, but I do believe they miss the essence of what God intends to say here. F follow me on this. When Moses uses the word turn, the actual Hebrew verb that's used is the word shub. Shub. S-H-U-B. Shub. Here, here's what's significant about that term. It's a covenantal term. It's a term centered in grace and the mercy of God in the covenant that God has made with us. The covenant fulfilled ultimately on the cross by Jesus Christ. That's incredibly significant. Here's why. It changes any superficial reading of Moses' words. What Moses is saying to God through this, this prayer is, is God, I'm asking you, shub, turn towards your covenant. Act according to your covenant. Don't change. Just be who you've almost always promised to be. Be that God of mercy and forgiveness. Show Egypt and the rest of the world who you are. Moses is not asking God to change his mind. By, by the way, the word mind is really not even in the Hebrew text. Rather, what, what, what he's asking God to, to do is to be who he is. Which brings us uh, to this second word, relent. It's often translated relent. Again, I find the Hebrew text helpful here. In the Hebrew text, the word used here, verse 12, for relent, God turn, turn towards your covenant and relent. Well, in the Hebrew text, the word used here is nakam, nakam, N-A-C-H-A-M, nakam. Now, here's one of the word's key meanings, quote, have compassion on us. End quote. Put it together. As Moses speaks to God, what's he asking for? He's saying, God, act according to your will. Act according to your covenant. Have compassion. Have compassion upon us. Bottom line, Moses is in no way asking God to change his mind. In fact, oppositely, he's asking God to simply be who he is, a covenantal God who acts according to compassion. So let's go to verse 14, which completes this conversation between God and Moses. What, what does it say? Again, I'll start with the English. It reads, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So let's ask the question. What is the result of Moses' prayer? So the English word used here is he relented. God relented. Moses prayed, God relented. Someone's going to look at me and say, see, God did relent. Moses' prayer is causative. That thought fails on two fronts. First, God at no time has the intent of killing all of his people. He does, according to his will, have the intent of removing all of those who sinned against the Holy Spirit, but not killing all of his people. That would actually be acting against his own will, which cannot enter the mind of God. So what does God do here? Where our English uses the term relent, the Hebrew again uses the verb nakam, to have compassion. Here's what makes sense. It does seem that God has in this text, in his mind, a disaster which he might use to remove Israel's errant leaders. It's possible that such a disaster, the Hebrew term used is ra or harm. Harm could be caused to the whole of Israel. Now note, at any time, God could have willed such a disaster to would have happened, but he never does. Instead, throughout this entire exchange, all God wants is the good of his people. So he nakams. He acts according to his unchanged will 
to show compassion upon Israel. So let me ask another key question. Who is really changed in this exchange? Who was who this exchange of words actually for? I'm going to argue it was for Moses, the prayer. Think about this with me. What is God actually doing here? Moses is coming down from Sinai. He spent 40 days before God. Seems like a long time, right? Until you consider the fact that he's getting ready to spend 40 years in the wilderness with these same people seeking to lead them into Canaan. Now, let me ask you, are there times that are going to come during this 40-year period where Moses will want to wipe out Israel? Oh, oh yeah, plenty of them, plenty of times. Where, where Moses is going to get so angry with the people of Israel, he's going to go before God and say, God, wipe them all out. You know what I think God's doing through Moses' prayer here? He's changing Moses. He's helping Moses prepare for the next 40 years and the multiple prayers that lay ahead of him. I believe this is critical. When we ask the question, does prayer do anything? The answer must unequivocally be yes. Yes, it does. So what does it accomplish? The primary purpose of prayer, I believe, is to do one thing, to change us, the prayers. How? By actually seeking to bring our will into alignment with God's unchanging will. I think that's what God is doing here in Moses' life. It's what we find when we look at Daniel's prayer in chapter 9. I want to come back to that next week. We'll close our look at the question, does prayer change anything? By looking at how God calls us to pray and seeing, seeing this in Daniel's prayer. Well, that's it for today. A little bit longer session. I wanted to try to get a little theology in. I hope it's been helpful to you. Listen, I keep you in my prayers all the time. You and your family, I'm lifting you up. I ask that you would lift me up. If you find this helpful, you want to share it with somebody else, I encourage you to do that. Uh, in the meantime, I look forward to being with you next week. Have a God-sized week.